Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, a Baptist perspective on history, culture, and theology. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And today our topic is Saved Church Membership, next in the series on Baptist Distinctives. Yes. So up front, that doesn't sound very interesting or um, relevant, but it actually refers to the nature of your people. Like who's going to be in your church? And how is that different for a Baptist or somebody else? It also gets into things like what your membership process should look like and your church discipline. Yeah, it also, it also probably sounds obvious up front if you've always been a Baptist. That's true. That kind of thing can also mean that you haven't necessarily thought through all the implications. Right. Yeah, because non-denominational churches would be similar. So between Baptist and non-denominational, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of churches. So if that's always been the case, you don't think about a baby being a member of a church and what that means. Yeah, so the, I guess the, the more technical name is regenerate church membership, referring to the regeneration of the Holy Spirit or salvation, saved church membership, a believer's church. So this is the most distinctive thing about a Baptist church. This is what sets us apart in, um, in more ways from more denominations than any single other thing. So if someone, to get, someone wanted to ask you a quick definition, what's the difference between Baptist churches and Lutheran, Methodists? This is probably the most different. And the definition is the church is only made up of believers. Whereas in a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, Anglican church, Catholic church, uh, Lutheran church, you, they're made up of everyone who's been baptized, which includes babies, people who haven't expressed faith. So, but Baptist, uh, along with, so ones that would be similar to Baptist would be like Anabaptist, Mennonites, uh, some Pentecostal churches. But Baptist really, this is, this is our defining, this is the Baptist principle that most other ones come from. I think Mark Dever says that Baptists are pretty much the same as every other Protestant. We don't have much to offer the world that Presbyterians or Lutherans haven't already offered better until it comes to ecclesiology. And this is the area where Baptists really have something distinct to offer. And that being, if you're not a believer, you can't be part of the church. So let me read uh, London Confession 1644. Now, one of the things interesting when you read through the confessions that there's a pretty large consensus that there is the universal church, the spiritual kingdom, and then there's the local church. I think in America in the past, I don't know, 100 years, that idea of a universal church has not, not been very popular. I don't know where that started, though. I know Jack Howells would preach against it quite a bit. It's probably landmark. Do you think landmarkism? Where they're like, you have to be in a direct you know, line from John the Baptist, or you're not a real church. They would they would reject the universal church, probably. I also have to suspect that because Catholic means universal, that mm-hmm. that's an element of it, too. Yeah, it's sort of taking the autonomous local church to another level. But that's a newer thing. Most Baptists throughout history, fast 400 years believe in a universal spiritual church that consists of all saved people. We're talking about the local church. So here's what the London Confession says. 
uh, that Christ hath here on earth a spiritual kingdom, which is the church. Uh, and it says, which church, as is as it is visible to us, so that's a local church that we can actually see, is a company of visible saints, called and separated from the world by the word and spirit of God to the visible profession of the faith, of the gospel, being baptized into that faith and joined to the Lord and each other by mutual agreement in the practical enjoyment of the ordinances commanded by Christ their head and king. That's actually one of the best of the confessions, best explanations. But the key there, it's a company of visible saints called and separated from the world uh, by the word and spirit of God. So in other words, they believe they're, they're people that you can see who have expressed faith in Christ. And then it says being baptized into that faith and joined to the Lord and each other by mutual agreement. So what Baptist said was, how can you be a member of the church if you don't believe in Jesus? Which is what Lutheran, which is what everyone was saying from about, man, who knows, 300 AD, 400 AD, all the way until 1600 AD, or at least the 1500s. And so what Baptists put forward is, in order to have a church visible, gathered together, it has to be voluntary. And baptizing babies is not voluntary. That's one of the biggest problems, not the biggest one. It's a big problem I have. I have some Lutheran friends and some Presbyterian friends who argue for it. No baby ever wanted to be in the church. Like no baptized Lutheran baby wanted to do that. It may be too far to say it was against their will, but it certainly wasn't according to their will. And maybe it's because I was raised Baptist that, that seems so foreign to me. But what Baptists believe is that every person who's a part of the church wants, wants to be there. And they want to be there because they're saved. So a Baptist church, theoretically, is only made of people who came to the church and said, I want to be a part of it. And then the church said, are you a believer? And they said, yes. So it's, it's a church made up of only those with a credible confession of faith. And so that's what it's saying here. They're being baptized by mutual agreement in the practical enjoyment of the ordinances. Uh, it's it's a volunteerism. Some people say called volunteerism is a, is a basic principle of Baptist faith, which, you know, if you think about freedom of conscience, it's the freedom to worship how you please. And baptizing a baby is not according to their conscience. You're making them join a church that they didn't want to join or didn't care to join. Uh, let's see what the 16... The classic 1689 confession. So it starts off saying the Catholic or universal church, which may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ. So that's the universal church. Uh, all persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel are part of that. Okay, then it talks about specifically local churches. For the local church... The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and one another by the will of God and profess subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. So again, you can hear that willingly 
voluntarily, um, profession. Well, it's interesting, the visibly manifesting and evidencing their obedience to Christ. And when the Baptists came out with this, it was radical. They, they Methodists, Lutherans, Church of England, Catholics, they almost couldn't comprehend how anyone who believed the Bible could believe that. It was so radical. They thought, you guys, are you even saved? You must not even be saved if you are trying to keep babies out of the church. So some of them said it was child abuse. You are withholding grace from your children by not letting them be baptized. And Baptist said, wait, what's the Bible say? The Bible says that everyone Jesus called followed him. He never kidnapped any of his disciples. Right. He always called them and then they chose to follow him. And then, and then it gives the references, especially the first few, few verses of the epistles. So 1 Corinthians 1, 1, Paul, apostle Christ Jesus to the saints at Corinth, to the saints at Ephesus. So the church was always the saints. So this principle of volunteerism is essential, but not just that you want to be a member of the church, but that the church can see that you're a Christian, that you are a visible, uh, not just first by your profession, but then also by your walk. And that means that the goal of a Baptist church is to make sure everybody in the church is saved. Now, it goes back to what is a church? So according to the Apostles' Creed, pop quiz, what is a church? What are the four qualities of a church in the Apostles' Creed? The it's not is, as hard as you think. The word is preached rightly. Now, that's actually, that's actually the Reformation. I had to brush yeah. up on that today. Yeah, I, we'll That's actually that. two marks they added. So in the Apostles' Creed, there are four marks of a church. One church, right? There's only one church that Christ died for. There's not two churches. Holy, so separate from the world. Catholic or universal. Uh, it's everywhere. And then apostolic. So it comes from the apostles. It's not founded by a, a another angel or something. Okay, so those are the four marks. But the Catholics believe that too. The Roman Catholics believe that. So when the Reformation shows up, the reformers said, okay, those are four marks of the church, but we need to distinguish it further by two more marks of a church. So, and those marks are what the church does. And that's what you were mentioning before. A true church is a church that preaches the word rightly and practices the ordinances rightly. Yeah, so in the Orthodox Creed, which is 1670 or something, it says, we believe the visible church of Christ on earth is made up of several distinct congregations, which make up that one Catholic church. And the marks by which she is known to be the true spouse of Christ are these, where the word of God is rightly preached and the sacraments truly administered according to Christ's institution. Now, again, that's the, a Baptist creed. That's not, it sounds Catholic to a lot of us, but that's one of the original Baptist creeds. So you can identify a true church because when you go there, you see the gospel, the word being preached rightly and the ordinances being practiced rightly, as opposed to the Catholic church, which they don't preach the gospel and they use the ordinances to give salvation, as it were. So that was what all Reformation churches believe. And Baptists are Reformation churches came out of the Reformation, radical Reformation, perhaps. But they, Baptists ask another question. 
So the reformers said, what is a church? Preach the word, practice ordinances. Baptists said, okay, we agree with that, but we want to ask another question. Who is the church? Not what is a true church. We agree. Who is the true church? And so their answer was, the Baptist answer is believers. Baptized believers who voluntarily join together. Anyone who's not a baptized believer voluntarily joined together is not part of the church or shouldn't be part of the church and certainly not part of the spiritual church. And the Baptists were willing to be killed for this because they were killed for this because it, and this is why I'm a committed Baptist. It's essential to the gospel. What does the gospel say? You chose to sin. God has provided a solution to save you. Now you must choose to repent and believe. If you do not choose to repent and believe, you'll continue on your sin and you'll be punished for your sins. So the gospel is a call, right? We call it the gospel call to make a choice. Uh, we're about to get into the Sermon on the Mount, the last part where it's two ways to live. Jesus offers two options and you have to choose between them. And so Baptist said, the heart of the gospel is recognizing you're a sinner or not the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel call is recognizing you're a sinner and responding to it. How can you divorce that from the church? No infant has ever repented and believed. So to be a part of the church, a Lutheran believes, unless they get around it with some sort of precognition, that you can be a member of the church and not believe the gospel. A Presbyterian believes that you can be a member of Christ's church and not believe in Christ. And Baptist said that's, it's not heresy, but it conceals the gospel. It's not consistent with the gospel. Baptist said, let's be consistent with the gospel. First of all, the Bible never talks about babies being brought into the church. And the reason is because everywhere in the New Testament, there's a call for a choice to be made. You know, when Jesus going out, disciples, he said, put down your nets and follow me. And then the next thing it says is, basically, they chose to put down their nets and follow him. And now they're part of the group. Acts chapter 2, as many as believed were baptized and added to the church. And so Baptist said, that's the heart of the gospel. And so the church is the gospel witness. And so we want our church to be made up of people who have responded to Christ and followed him. Uh, and so the implications of that, the implications of that practically, so that's a big picture. Practically, that means on a Sunday morning, you're going to have two, you, a Baptist church should have two kinds of people in the service. Members and non-members. And everyone should know that there's a difference. I'm curious about what your view of membership. If you can remember back to when we started kind of doing the revitalization of the church. Yeah. How, how did membership, how central was that to the change, do you think, for you, from your perspective? In our church. The membership was always kind of perfunctory beforehand. Right. So it felt it moved towards more of a responsibility. What I'm saying is, did it, um, do you, did you feel like at the time that it was a central part of our church's change or was it just sort of like something that happened along with it? I guess you could give me more specifics about what about membership? What else? Like actually, a member, well, a meaningful membership where we actually took note of it and had requirements and. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, 
how like uh, four years ago specific well no what i meant is like i don't know how specific i mean i think it definitely had a change because it felt like it empowered members that were already on interested in being invested right and marginal marginal members it challenged yeah well i'm asking because from my perspective when i came to the church yeah i would say the two major pushes that i had the two major things that i was pushing to change church was gospel center preaching and membership yeah so from my point of view as a pastor trying to figure out the best way to revitalize the church or make it more biblical I, f- I thought membership was a was one of the primary maybe even the primary thing that needed to be that needed to be changed yeah I mean uh, and so I was wondering if that came across from the other side hmm I don't know if I would have stated it that way I think right the end result was there because like I said I think the members myself included that were invested instead of instead of being invested and feeling powerless right you actually a part of the membership right I'm saying this too because as pastors hopefully they listen to this they want to implement Baptist theology into the churches I believe membership is is one of the best ways to do that to reform the church to revitalize the church but it may not come across that way other people so it doesn't need to be necessarily um seen the same way but the from the bat uh, from the pastor's point of view this is essential to a church uh, as an essential baptist position if you're a baptist you're saying this is essential to the church which means if it's not being done correctly the church can't be healthy it just it, it can't be so what does membership do there, because there's a push over the past, I don't know, 100 years, 50 years, that membership is nice but not necessary or not important. I think most Baptist churches have a membership, but I would say very few of them care about it. If you ask them, so I mean, people here is talking about nine marks. Nine marks is not special. They didn't come up with any of the nine marks, and the membership mark. Mark Dever basically just read a bunch of Baptist theology books from 500 years, 400 years ago and just repackaged it. So what, what, what I'm reading in the confessions of the 1600s, if you read it, you're like, oh, this is nine marks. It's actually not. It's just Baptist theology. And so Dever is a, a, a Baptist, and so he's incorporating that. But without membership, how do you know that the church is regenerate? How do you know everyone's saved if there's not some sort of number to be saved? And so what's happened in America, I think there's two sides. You have this sort of um, cultural church, especially in the South, where on the membership roll, there'll be 750 people because the church has been around for 150 years. On a Sunday morning, you'll have 120. That's one and I don't think a lot of our listeners have that problem because I would say most of our listeners are either independent Baptist church planners or some sort of a younger denominator demographic or in a younger um, church. When I say younger, I mean less than 50 years, but there are a lot of churches, especially in the South areas that have been Christianized for a long time where their, their membership list is 10 times the size of their attendance. And so what the Baptists are saying is the visible church, not the church on paper. You go and you say, this is the church. 
Sunday morning, everyone's there. That's your membership. They should all be saved. But if your actual membership on paper has 10 times the number, well, are they saved? Who knows? But then I think more for our listeners, uh, there's probably a lot of us, like, like our church was, where you didn't really know who the members were. It wasn't really important who the members were. It was only important who showed up. The church was who showed up. And I know in our church, we had people who had been attending for decades that people assumed were members of the church who'd never been baptized. But because we didn't care about membership, no one knew. So in other words, our Baptist church had rejected the Baptist principle of regenerate church membership. And so when we're thinking about how to orient our churches, if membership is not at the top of the list, then we are saying that we are okay with non with non-christians being a part of our group which makes it undermine baptist principles but it undermines the idea that the church is a spiritual organization that's required by the holy spirit that the holy spirit is required to join together and if you have unbelievers there how can you expect them to do the right thing how can you expect them to be a church if they're not a part of christ and so when we neglect membership, we are promoting a mixed church. And Baptists have never believed that because we don't think it's possible to have unbelievers knowingly a part of the church. And so I think all of our listeners who are Baptists would say, you shouldn't baptize babies because they're not Christians. But they'll let non-Christians sit in their services month after month, year after year, and everyone think they're members. It's the same thing. And so... The way the Baptists have traditionally handled this is that they have, and really Christians, if you go back to the beginning, you have membership classes. The old, back in the early church, they called it catechism. You had to do some sort of discipleship training before you could join. With Because of this reason, we only want Christians in our church. How do we know you're a Christian? Well, we got to see some evidence. We got to know what you're, what you believe, how you practice. So discipleship training before membership was a way to keep unbelievers out of the church. It's not meant to make sure everyone in the church is a good Christian, quote unquote, or a mature Christian. It's simply don't let unbelievers become part of your church. And so you have membership classes to, as a way to do that. Uh, they didn't have membership classes in Acts chapter two. And many modern Baptists are using that as a, as a way to say it doesn't matter. But if you study the culture at that time, the membership class was, do you want to die like Jesus? Because the same Roman soldiers that killed him are literally in the city right now. Like It was only a few weeks later. The same people who had executed Jesus were still on duty. And so if you joined Jesus' movement, it was very likely that the religious leaders who were sitting in the temple at the time would kill you. And so the barrier between saved and unsaved was very clear because why would you join a church where you would get killed? And they were persecuted. You go further in Acts, the church was scattered. Why would you join that church if you didn't believe it, if you didn't believe in Jesus? Why follow someone who's going to get you killed or exiled if you didn't believe he was Christ? So that was theirs. We in America are in a much different position. So membership needs to be taken more seriously. Another thing that Baptists have traditionally done 
up until, I don't know, 100 years ago, 20th century, was a church covenant. If you go into old Southern Baptist churches, um, missionary Baptist churches, on the wall in the foyer, you're probably going to see a framed copy of the probably the original church constitution. And that's what everyone signed. And the idea, like remember what the, what the confession said, voluntarily joining together. You, you freely follow Christ and you freely join together. And so the church covenant was the typical Baptist practice to ensure that everyone who joined knew what they were getting into. And it's, it's, it's basically a summary of the scripture. And it's a, it's a way of saying we're all in this together willingly because we're all willingly following Christ. So the covenant membership classes taking care with baptism. I was just reading statistics in the 1800s or in the 1900, 20th century. Child baptisms tripled in the Southern Baptist Convention. No one was baptized as a child before because Baptists said we just can't know that a child is actually saved enough to let them join. Uh, I was reading in Romania at currently there's no rule, but no one under 14 tries to join the Baptist church or tries to get baptized. Uh, the, one of the guys writing from Brazil said, you have to take like a six to 13 week class before you can get baptized. Um, I know a Baptist pastor in England who makes people wait a year to be baptized. So this is typical. Now, for our listeners in America, that's not typical. It's very strange to hear people waiting on baptism because our our way was as soon as they profess Christ, you baptize them. Which is, you know, it's it's naive to do that. I don't know if it was because. Well, it's naive to assume that people who profess Christ are saved. Well, no, what I was going to say is I don't know how typical my experience was. I mean, I was six, mm-hmm. so that was still young. But it wasn't mm-hmm. quite as direct as you just listed. I just want to be fair to how things Oh, happened. that's I guess so for I, me too. I was nine. I had So I was six when I was baptized, but I remember I had to go over to the pastor's house, which was very intimidating. Um, but <laughs> I had to go over. I, was, I went over to, this, to, to your dad's house for the afternoon. And we discussed what baptism was. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking more. Yeah, that's true. I think children are, are handled with more care. Maybe yeah. adults. That's true. Adults yeah. are handled with less care. I think, I think and adults the, are assumed to know what they're getting into. Right. It's a naive assumption that because someone says they believe Jesus, that they believe Jesus. And we live in a country where people have been saying that from the, the people at the bottom level of society all the way up to the president are saying we believe in Jesus. So it doesn't mean anything to say that. It requires no sacrifice. So the so a Baptist church will say, well, let's see if you believe Jesus. Before we baptize you in the name of Jesus and into membership in our church, we want to make sure you're a believer. We want to see the fruit. Good tree produces good fruit. Bad tree produces bad fruit. A Christian tree produces Christian fruit. And it's, it's not making it hard to join the church. It's just making sure that everyone in the church is saved. So the 1689 confession doesn't just say you join the church by making a profession. It says the members of these churches are saints by calling. And it says visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession. So that's where most people stay 
That's where many Baptist churches in America are just, if you profess, then you get baptized. But then it says, and walking their obedience unto the call of Christ. So before you joined a typical Baptist church prior to the 20th century, you had to give a profession of faith, and then you had to give evidence that you were walking in the faith before you could be baptized. And that protects the church. It protects it from letting unbelievers in the church. And I think one of the ways that this is being broken down more easily, and I have good friends who do this, is letting people get involved in the ministry of the church who are not believers or who are not members. So it's it's been pushed as good practice uh, to reach people to let them start serving in the church before they join the church as a way to include them. The problem is you're sending the message to them that they can be a part of the church ministry without even being saved. Uh, even, you know, someone like Tim Keller will have hired musicians on the stage. And I just can't help but think that sends the message that there's not a big deal. But of course, Keller also baptizes babies. So I guess it doesn't matter too much. <laughs> but we need to be very careful with our membership because if your members are not saved, you cannot revitalize the church. It's impossible because your church is partially dead spiritually. When you get up and preach the word to your members and expect them to follow it, you're assuming that they have the Holy Spirit. But if you're calling your church just a gathering of people with no mark between them and the world, what does it mean to be revitalized? It means partly that some of the people need to get saved and become a Baptist, or at least display the Baptist theology. Okay, then the second part, the second way that Baptists stay Baptist, stay regenerate church, is church discipline, which is yet another mark, uh, practice that's dropped out in the past 100 years. Uh, church discipline in Baptist churches, especially more mainline, like Southern Baptists, is non-existent. But even in our own sort of more fundamentalist circles, it's not practiced biblically if it's practiced at all. So if you neglect church discipline, you are going to allow unbelievers to remain in your church. And so the decline happened in the 1800s uh, after the Civil War, which if you're familiar with religious history in America, what's rising in America mid-1800s that will then be the most powerful religious force in America? called Christianity. It would be revivalism. D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, these guys are rising to power at the same time that church discipline is 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 going away. So Greg Wills, who's a um, Baptist historian, taught at Southern, he actually wrote a book on church discipline in the 1700s, 1800s in Baptist churches. And he said, among all the denominations, this is back before revivalism, among all the denominations, Baptists won the reputation of the strongest commitment to democratic principles and individual freedom, yet they also demonstrated the most zeal for strict church discipline. I think he goes on to say that they would discipline out of their church like 10% every year in the 1700s, 1800s. And they said because Baptists practice close communion, they believe that the churches were unique because they were only saved people. And so church discipline 
And when I say church discipline, the excommunication part. One of the primary purposes of excommunication is to get unbelievers out of the church. Out of the it's membership the, of the church. Out of the, out of the membership of the church, out of the visible church. It's to remove unbelievers from the visible church. It's, and unfortunately, it wasn't used that way, but that's one of the main purposes. It's to make sure that everyone in your visible church is a, is a follower of Christ. And so the formal way the Bible teaches to do that, if someone continues in sin, refuses to repent, the church says to them, you are now a heathen. Matthew chapter 18. And Baptists were strong on that because it was necessary. So why did it decline? Why do none of us ever see it being practiced unless in a very unhealthy form? So when you look back at the history of the, of the Baptist faith, 17, especially after 18, Civil War was really where it started to go downhill. But that's also where evangelicalism um, came into power. And so there's historians give about four reasons. Number one, individualism. Classic, rugged American individualism. I'm my own problem, not your problem. You can't tell me what to do. Right. Me and Jesus versus the world. So when everyone's an individual in a church, no one's responsible for anybody but themselves. And so you're certainly not going to be able to tell someone else what to do, much less kick them out of the church. And so individualism, as it rose into power, the sort of personal contact with Christ, revival meetings are a big deal. And revival meetings are certainly about the individual. Uh, just the whole American experience. So that that killed church discipline over over late 1800s, early 1900s. The second thing is abuse of the of church discipline. I think this would be something we're familiar with, where someone does something the pastor doesn't like, and he basically runs them out of the church. Um, he church discipline was used to control people in a in an unhealthy way. If you didn't agree on every single tiny thing or you did something people didn't like, they would use the church discipline to punish you. It was, it was a tool of punishment. And that still happens. It's not biblical, certainly not Baptist, and it contributed to the decline. Um, but then here's some things that are still present. Evangelism over discipleship. So these aren't my opinions right here. The, the, I do agree with them. These are historical. This is the historical record that they researched and said these are the reasons discipline faded out of Baptist churches. It's because evangelism was the goal, not discipleship. Now think of D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, R.A. Torrey. What's their goal? Have a camp meeting, have a ton of people show up, do, give an altar call, a ton of people get saved, you move on to the next town. Billy Graham, Charles Finney, the goal of all of these guys is evangelism. And church discipline and evangelism, what's it have to do with anything? We're too busy getting people saved to church discipline. We're too, get, too busy getting people saved to disciple them. That's what John R. Rice said about fundamentalism, or, or as a fundamentalist. The goal of the church is to get people saved. So who cares if everybody's saved in the church? we got to get them saved, and that's it. That's all we're going to do. And so church discipline declined. Another thing is in the 1700s, Baptist churches were tiny. I'm talking 20, 30 people. Uh, a lot of rural churches. And so they would grow, be small churches. But then they started to gain a little bit of social power. And they started to grow bigger. And so after the Civil War, Baptist churches became known for uh, efficiency of practice. So instead of being careful about who becomes 
who's in your church, you're now about efficiency. And that's where you see like the rise of like the Sunday school movement. D.L. Moody's Sunday school, the um, Arthur Flake's seven rules for effective Sunday school or whatever that is. Um, mega churches. There were no mega churches before, but now you're having you know, the Moody church in Chicago. Uh, J. Frank Norris's church, first Baptist Dallas, big churches that require a lot of moving parts and church discipline is a slow, tedious process. And if you've got a mega church, it's hard to discipline one person. And so discipline declines and, and almost disappears. Well, you can still see this is the same problem we're having today. Baptist churches are more concerned about growing the size of their church than making sure the church is healthy. For a lot of these churches who have a great outreach program and it's sort of a dynamic ministry, the turnover rate, people just coming and going, not excommunicated church. They just show up two years later, they're gone. Um, or just people just showing up and the size of the crowd is the size of the church and an indicator of the health of the church. A Baptist would say the health of the church is indicated by how many people are actually saved. A healthy Baptist church has 100% members saved. And how do you figure that out? Well, you use church discipline to first correct people, formative discipline. And that helps people become mature Christians. Then corrective discipline, which removes them if they're unbelievers. And, then, and this is the key. It's not, it's not manipulation. It's not pressure. It's simply making sure everyone in the church is saved. The witness, the testimony of the church is a pure church. Uh, and then finally, the last reason that church discipline declined is churches started working towards secular change rather than church um, membership change. So think of the temperance movement. Mm -hmm. So before Baptists were regularly excommunicating people for drunkenness. But then the temperance movement, they realized, oh, wait, we can get people in society to stop drinking. And as they saw success changing secular society, they neglected their own society. And so the 1800s, you have tons of reforms going on, the suffrage movement, first wave feminism, all this good stuff um, that the church was leading. But their goal, the, church, the goal of the church was not spiritual reformation of their own hearts. It was changing the behavior of society. And they were good at it. And that still happens. We've got to elect so-and-so as president. We've got to get these laws in place because we've got to make society. We've got to go back to when the good old days, when everyone was doing the right thing. Instead of saying, is our church doing the right thing? Are our members doing the right thing? Do we even know who our members are? So Baptist churches, the mission of the church, and this is going to sound funny to some people, the mission of the church is not to change society. It's not the mission of the church is not to fix social problems. The church should not be a social justice warrior. The mission of the church is to disciple its own people. And a Baptist church is to make sure everyone is a saved follower of Christ and being discipled. Now, the mission of individuals, that's different. But in America, churches stopped trying to, Baptist churches stopped trying to make sure their members were discipled and started trying to get social change. And you can trace it all the way up to the moral majority. And I would say the health of churches have never been worse 
in America than in the past 50 years, 30 years. And it's not because we need to go back to the Bible broadly. It's because we've neglected our own principles. And instead of trying to make sure that all of our elected officials are saved, we need to make sure that everyone who shows up on Sunday and calls themselves a member are saved. So that's that's why being a Baptist is so important. It's not a, it's not as much about immersion and all those other things. It's about the very fundamental nature of the church. The mission of the church is to evangelize and disciple. And everything else is secondary or falls under the, the role of individuals. And what I see in Baptist churches and in our own church when, when I came here, no one knows who the members are and no one cares who they are. And there's very little effort to make sure everyone is saved. A lot of effort to make sure everyone behaves correctly, but not to make sure they're saved. And we have members of our church um, who I'm almost certain are not saved. Not They weren't members. I'm almost certain they weren't saved, but they were treated like members. Given the right hand of fellowship, called brother. How can you have a healthy church when you're calling unbelievers brother? Because they showed up every Sunday. And the rise in mega churches, the, the emphasis on evangelism, individualism, efficiency, it's corrupting churches. It's, it's allowing unbelievers to come into churches. And then, okay, so let's talk about other issues like abuse, um, political problems. What do you expect unbelievers to do? Unbelievers act like unbelievers. So a lot of the, a lot of the abuse issues in our churches... I think can be boiled down to the fact that the abuser is not a Christian. Well, that, what about the pastors? What about the pastors? Right. I would say that if you abuse someone sexually, your Christianity, your very faith should be put on trial. Like you need to be brought and and there needs to be an investigation of whether you are a believer at all. And so a lot of the abuse issues, I believe as a Christian, that to, to do those sorts of things gives indication that you're not a believer at all. But there was never an attempt to m- make sure they were believers. So being a Baptist goes, this is the heart of it. Regenerate church membership. Don't baptize infants because they're not saved. And don't let grownups be baptized who aren't believers. And don't have a church structure that's so concerned with getting more people there at the same time that we allow unbelievers to basically infiltrate us. This actually addresses an issue that pastor brought up. They're very, he was very concerned about the stuff I say on, on say Twitter or Facebook about, um, people with different morals than us, say LGBTQ community or Islam or where I'll say things like, I hope they have a, a healthy life and receive justice. I hope they have freedom. His concern was, if you talk like that, you're sending the message that they're welcome in your church. And eventually, there'll be more people who don't believe like you than who believe like you. Right. And we had actually a former member of our church say the same thing. We're like, if we let anybody show, if everyone's welcome on Sunday, then we'll we'll lose our identity as a church and we'll just be full of all all these people who have different morals. What's the answer? They're not part of the church. Right. Attendance doesn't equal membership. But I think for a lot of Baptist church, that is where they say right. it or not. That's their model. Um, 
some even explicitly say it. I've been told explicitly by some people that you're responsible for the people that show up, whether they're members or not. That there's them showing up means you're responsible for them. But what happens? I would say you have some. You have varying levels yes. of responsibility to everybody that shows up. Right. You're not responsible for their behavior, I should right. say. Yeah. So if a Muslim shows up to our Sunday morning service because they saw me post something that said, I love Muslims and I hope they're all happy and I hope they receive justice and freedom. And so they show up on Sunday and they bring a hundred of their friends. So the entire mosque shows up on Sunday morning. And now there's more Muslims in our service than there are Baptists. The fear is they take over and now you have a Muslim church. So how do you prevent that? Well, this is Baptist theology is the way to prevent that. You say to them, you are welcome in our services. You are welcome to listen to the gospel. But you're not the church because you show up. The church you have to join and only believers join. So this pastor was was concerned that by being what he would say soft on LGBTQ community or, or things like that, that eventually they would take over the church. And I just want to say, no, they won't because we're a Baptist church. And for anyone to join our church, they have to go before the church and give evidence that they are a believer, sign our covenant. And then they can be excommunicated if they break those things. So I hope 100 Muslims show up on Sunday. That'd be, that'd be amazing. Because then I would just preach the gospel to them. And then when people say, oh, I saw 100 Muslims. Are they a part of your church? I saw them there on Sunday. I was like, no, they're not a part of our church. We're a Baptist church. They're visitors. Well, they've been visiting for two years. It's like, I know, that's great. But you could visit for 50 years. doesn't make you a member. Um, well, they always help after the service, like cleaning up. It's like, yeah, they volunteered to do that. We didn't, like, no amount of service, no amount of attendance, no amount of support makes you a member. Uh, only by being a believer following Christ and be given evidence of that. So what that does is that frees a Baptist up to be the most loving person in the world without fear that they're going to be compromised theologically. Um, and, a, and a lot of Baptists are, are, have no theology in place where they can say something positive towards a, a Muslim without affecting their church membership. And so what, what happens is they're just nasty to them. <laughs> And they make it very clear that those kind of people are not welcome in the services. Right. Uh, and that's the only way they keep their church pure is by making people who are not like them unwelcome. Which is a, it's church discipline, but not in a biblical model. Right. It's church uh, and that's the problem. That's that the problem with Puritan. Was that? I said it's church discipline enacted on people who didn't agree to. <laughs> right. Right. Which is the problem the Puritans faced. Yeah. The Puritans were trying to purify a church where everyone was a member. You came in because you were born into it, and now you got to purify it. The Baptist said, why do we just – let's just make sure no one joins without being a believer. Then you don't have to practice excommunication on people who didn't want to be there to begin with. And, yeah, so what you see is a lot of informal church discipline that comes in the form of yelling from the pulpit, um, awkwardness from people in the church when they meet someone who's very different from them, the way Facebook or the way their uh, website is set up to give the message of this is the kind of church we are. And only those who agree with it are welcome here. 
uh, and all those things are, are very unhealthy. So I think if we recover our Baptist theology, it will make us more healthy and more identifiable as a church, and it will make us able to be more welcoming to outsiders, which is exactly how Jesus operated. Jesus was the most welcoming, and everyone wanted him around, but everyone was knew very clearly who he was and what he believed. And so Baptists try to do the same thing with their theology. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com or message us on Twitter at History and Hope. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app of your choice. Sorry to interrupt, but go on there and review and rate so that we can get higher on the charts. We're like not even on the top 200 in history. So <laughs> review and rate. Even even bad reviews? No. Don't leave any bad reviews. Give, Just give leave your honest, reviews. as someone, as another podcast I listen to says, give your honest five-star reviews. Give your honest five-star reviews. That's good.